The House and Senate have both taken off for their August recess and will not return until after Labor Day. The Senate will return September 5, while the House will not return until September 12. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Tuesday and took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up H.R. 4366, the Military Construction Veterans Affairs and Related Agencies Appropriations Act for 2024. Through the course of the afternoon and evening, the House considered 10 amendments and agreed to seven of them. On Thursday, the House voted on final passage of the bill as amended. The bill passed by a vote of 219 to 211. Then the House moved to two Congressional Review Act resolutions of disapproval. S.J. Res. 9 disapproved of the rules submitted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service relating to endangered and threatened wildlife and plants. The lesser prairie chicken threatened status with Section 4D rule for the northern distinct population segment and endangered status for the southern distinct population segment. S.J. Res. 24 disapproved of the rules submitted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service relating to endangered and threatened wildlife and plants, endangered species status for the northern long-eared bat. Both of them passed on essentially party-line votes. And then they were done early. The House Republican leadership realized it still didn't have the votes lined up to pass the FY 2024 Agriculture Appropriations Act, so they kept the bill off the floor and changed plans and ended the session a day early. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Tuesday and voted to agree to an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act offered by Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn. Then the Senate voted to agree to an amendment to the NDAA offered by South Dakota Republican Senator Mike Rounds. On Wednesday, the Senate considered four amendments to the NDAA. The Senate voted to agree to an amendment from Georgia Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock to provide enhanced protection against debt collector harassment of members of the armed forces. Then the Senate voted against an amendment from Texas Republican Ted Cruz to provide remedies to members of the armed forces discharged or subject to adverse action under the COVID vaccine mandate. Then the Senate voted to reject an amendment offered by Mississippi Republican Senator Roger Wicker to establish the Office of the Lead Inspector General for Ukraine Assistance. Then the Senate voted to reject an amendment offered by Kentucky Republican Rand Paul to provide for the independent and objective conduct and supervision of audits and investigations relating to the programs and operations funded with amounts appropriated or otherwise made available to Ukraine for military, economic, and humanitarian aid. On Thursday, the Senate over voted overwhelmingly to agree to an amendment offered by Wyoming Republican John Barrasso regarding nuclear security. Then the Senate voted overwhelmingly to reject an amendment offered by Vermont Independent Bernie Sanders to dramatically cut spending on the military. Then, by just one vote, the Senate voted to reject an amendment offered by Kansas Republican Roger Marshall to prohibit the flying, draping, or other display of any flag other than the flag of the United States at public buildings. Then the Senate considered seven more amendments, of which it agreed to five. And then the Senate voted on the bill as amended, and it passed by a vote of 86 to 11. And then they were done. Now, let's talk about the coming September spending fight. September is going to be busy. The House is scheduled to be in session for just 12 legislative days during the month. Those 12 days will be busy. 
The end of September is the end of the fiscal year, so that's the deadline for passage of the FY 2024 appropriations bills and also the FAA reauthorization bill. And while we're at it, that's also the deadline for passage of the Farm Bill and reauthorization of the National Flood Insurance Program. At this point, the House has passed precisely one of the 12 appropriations bills needed to fund the government. That puts the House one bill ahead of the Senate, which has passed precisely zero of the 12 bills it needs to pass by the end of the fiscal year. On the other hand, for the first time in five years, the Senate Appropriations Committee has voted to send all 12 appropriations bills to the floor, so at least the committee has done its job. Remember, the House is going to be passing appropriations bills that fund the government at much lower levels than will the Senate, and then the bills are going to have to be reconciled in a conference committee, and neither side has any particular pressure it can bring to bear on the other to force it to cave. So don't be at all surprised if the end of September arrives and we haven't passed the spending bills and we end up in a game of high-stakes chicken that leads to a partial temporary government shutdown. Now an update on the envoy to Iran, maybe mishandling documents. You'll recall that several weeks ago we talked about Robert Malley, the Biden administration's special envoy to Iran. Mali had been tasked with negotiating with Iran over a return by Iran to the terms of the Obama-Iran nuclear deal. But after more than two years of attempts, Mali had failed to achieve that mission. Then in June, we learned that Mali had been placed on leave from his position at the State Department and had had his security clearance suspended indefinitely. But we weren't sure over what precisely. Last Friday, under pressure from Capitol Hill, the State Department gave the House Foreign Affairs Committee a classified briefing on the situation. But a Foreign Affairs Committee spokesman told the Washington Times that State had failed to give the committee any significant new information and had not explained why Malley's clearance had been suspended. Now an update on the Julie Sue nomination. It's been 139 days since Deputy Labor Secretary Julie Sue began service as the acting Secretary of Labor while she waits for the Senate to vote to confirm her to serve as Secretary of Labor. That's longer than any cabinet nominee has ever waited for a confirmation vote when the President's party has controlled the Senate. And every day that goes by without a Senate confirmation is a day that sets a new record. With the Senate out until at least Labor Day, Sue's record will continue to elongate. Now to the Biden crime family saga update this week. Well, let's take a breath before we get into this, because last week it got really interesting. On Wednesday morning, in a federal district court in Wilmington, Delaware, federal prosecutors and Hunter Biden and his lawyers gathered in the courtroom of federal district judge Mary Ellen Noreika for what they thought would be a routine sign-off from a judge on a plea agreement. The plea agreement had been announced on June 20. After five years of investigation, Justice Department prosecutors had decided they would accept a guilty plea from Hunter Biden on two misdemeanor counts of failing to file and pay his tax returns for 2017 and 2018, and would agree to let him enter a pretrial diversion program in lieu of charging him with knowingly possessing a firearm while then an unlawful user of or person addicted to a controlled substance. In exchange for Biden's agreement to plead guilty to the two misdemeanor tax charges, 
the Department of Justice would satisfy itself with a monetary penalty, that is, he would pay a fine, and they would recommend no jail time. And under the diversion program for the gun crime, as long as he didn't possess a gun or use drugs for two years, he would avoid conviction and prison time there, too. To the surprise of no reasonable person, many critics had immediately labeled the plea agreement a sweetheart deal, and arguments were made that any other person who had behaved in a similar fashion over a similar number of years would have been charged with far more serious crimes. In fact, the previous week, during their testimony in front of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, the two IRS whistleblowers who had worked the case pointed out that DOJ guidelines require that prosecutors charge the most serious crime that can be readily proven, and that when both a felony count and a misdemeanor count can be charged, the felony count should be charged. So, even as they gathered in the knowledge that they were getting away with one, prosecutors and Biden's lawyers believed the Wednesday meeting would be routine. Instead, the judge began asking questions, and all hell broke loose. Judge Norica had two problems with the agreement. First was a question about the absurdly broad immunity provision, which, for some reason, was not in the plea agreement itself, but instead was found in the diversion agreement. When she zeroed in on that paragraph, she first asked why it had been written in a way that gave her no legal authority to reject it. Then she exposed significant differences between how the prosecutor saw the agreement and how Biden's lawyer saw the agreement. Biden's lawyer said he understood the terms of the provision to mean that his client had broad immunity from future prosecution for just about anything Hunter had done in the years between 2014 and 2019. Prosecutors, on the other hand, said they saw the immunity as much more limited. Under direct questioning from the judge, they said it would not, for instance, include immunity from prosecution for violation of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. This sent Biden's lawyer off. Biden himself said he could not agree to a deal that didn't offer him broad immunity. It appears the DOJ got caught. Stop and think for a moment. What the DOJ lawyers would have us believe is that in the middle of an ongoing investigation into serious matters and potential crimes, including failure to file as an agent of a foreign power, the DOJ would conclude a plea deal with a suspect. That just makes no sense at all. Regardless of what the words on the page and DOJ said, regardless of what the words on the page said, DOJ had no plans to continue its investigation of Hunter Biden. This was it. And I'm quite sure that's what they told Hunter's lawyer. But that obviously wouldn't fly in open court. So when the judge asked the question out loud, the DOJ attorneys in the courtroom had to acknowledge that, of course, the investigation into Hunter was still open and could, therefore, possibly yield future indictments yet to be determined. Then the judge objected to a second part of the agreement, in the, diver in the diversion agreement on the gun crime. Biden's lawyers were worried, as they were drafting the agreement, that Biden's father might not win re-election. In fact, they were worried that he might lose the 2024 election to a Republican, and that a Republican-appointed DOJ leadership team in 2025 might view the agreement struck in 2023 differently. So they wanted to remove review of the terms of the agreement as much as possible from the DOJ, and put it in the hands of the judge herself. 
But the judge raised questions about the constitutionality of such a provision. Prosecutorial powers, after all, she pointed out, are found in the executive branch. The agreement as it was drawn gave her executive branch powers. Executive branch powers she did not want because she feared such an arrangement was unconstitutional. 